Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. My guest today is Lars Christian Wilde, President, Chief Business Officer and Co-Founder of Compass Pathways. The mental health care company dedicated to accelerating patient access to evidence-based innovation in mental health, as they describe themselves. Compass was one of the first companies engaging in a bigger vision of the substance psilocybin. I remember talking to Lars in one of the first podcasts of the New Health Club, and one of our topics was if there would be a vaccine against depression, still an interesting thought to me. I also remember how openly Lars talked about his treatment-resistant depression and anxiety disorder and the effects it had on himself and the people in his life. And how he told me about his treatment with psilocybin that helped him tremendously. I'm always a fan of people, especially entrepreneurs in the psychedelic field, that share their psychedelic experiences and are personally affected by the power of psychedelic substances. But now to a conversation about Compass Pathway. In 2020, a lot of things have happened at Compass. In September last year, the company became a public company, listing their stock on NASDAQ and raising $146 million. Compass has become one of the most exciting companies in the field very fast. So Lars and I catch up what is happening in the Compass world right now. How does a public company feel different? How does the Compass and the Shepard Pratt collaboration looks like since Compass is opening a center of excellence in collaboration with the Shepard Pratt Institute for Advanced Diagnostics and Therapeutics in Baltimore, Maryland to do more research. Their psychiatry department exists since the 1800s. So Lars and I talk about how you can implement old research data from the beginning of psychiatry and the new psychedelic research and how this can look like. We talk about Compass study in collaboration with the Charité in Berlin and how to conduct the study in times of COVID at all. Plus how COMP360, a psilocybin therapy trial for treatment-resistant depression, will work. So please enjoy the episode and Lars. So Lars, brackets, Christian Wilde, you're on the show for the second time. And I think like in this year, the last year, like it feels like five years than just one year, what has happened. So, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but at the moment, so you're the co-founder and the president of Compass Pathway, right? That is correct. Okay, yes. good. And um, so 
of course, I pretty much everybody will know the company who's listening to this podcast. But first of all, we already talked a little bit about it. How did you guys proceed last year when the pandemic was hitting and <clears throat> all the trials were just set up and then you had to stop? How did you manage through this? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Indeed, it's been a crazy year uh, for everyone. Um, <clears throat> and just further emphasizing probably the need for new therapies and mental health, actually, when you look at the rising numbers through the increasing isolation. Maybe something we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. In terms of our uh, COVID response, I remember it was in uh, February, so right around the time a year ago. Um, we were in London uh, with the team, had team meetings in the office, and um, uh, together decided very early, actually, to shut down the office. Um, because mm -hmm. um, obviously we can work remotely. We're in that fortunate position. We don't have any production and... Um, Uh, obviously, the trials are run by our university partners, and so we could actually give people the freedom to work from home early. Then when we said, I remember we, we had a discussion um, with our team and we said, okay, now is the time to actually take action. Our office is in London in Paddington Station, so the whole world is traveling from oh, wow. Heathrow to Paddington, basically through our <laughs> office. And so we said, okay, that's really the worst place to be in. The situation was completely unclear what COVID was and what it, how, how severe the situation might turn out. And so we said, look, we shut down the office and um, we work remotely. And um, we did so before. Uh, we were used to working on Zoom. There was always, in any meeting, there was a colleague that had to dial in. And so that was not a big change for us. And I remember everybody said, you're crazy, you're overreacting. And uh, then mm -hmm. three weeks later or so, the whole world shut down. Um, so uh, I think we did it at the right time. <clears throat> and then in terms of, obviously, the... Um, Uh, you know that we're running our phase to be program uh, in mm -hmm. North America and in Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the uh, study had to uh, stop initially. Um, and uh, we had to assess the situation. Now we're live again um, um, in uh, 10 countries, 22 sites. So we cope really well um, mm -hmm. uh, with it. Um, we're not losing much time. And so that went well. But I think, you know, we all... Uh, I mean, you know, this situation, we're all pretty much uh, fed up with uh, being only virtual, just lacks the yeah. human touch to be in person. And, um, but I mean, like, do you think that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that in, let's say, like the studies also would have to then be let like half, half or like maybe full on digital. So it, yeah. how, how important is like the, You just mentioned it, like the human touch for studies. I mean, it must be super important also, right? Look, I, I, I believe so. Um, that uh, the, 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 we know, for example, the um, therapeutic alliance between the therapist, the lead mm -hmm. therapist and the patient is really important. And so we cannot lose this, right? Um, psilocybin therapy happens uh, in a mental health care facility and um, uh, under the Uh, guidance of a, a trained therapist so we can't um, and we can't and we don't want to get rid of that aspect but um, there are many um, uh, ways around this and so for example we are able to uh, have um, uh, sessions uh, digitally uh, with the patients uh, for preparation and integration mm -hmm. um, for example um, uh, we have remote uh, follow-up visits on the um, depression, uh, severity of the patients post uh, dosing. So um, we see that probably 
as many companies experience that COVID is a little bit of a catalyst uh, to drive um, change that was already coming yeah. but at a higher speed now. Like with everything, with um, digital worlds, with, um, like you mentioned it earlier, with the recognition of the mental health crisis also, that it's kind of unstoppable. But quickly coming back to last year, I mean, if you kind of review the, the year last year, like 2020, leading up to the IPO. So what would you say was the biggest yeah, changes or, or things you maybe kind of mm. never really thought about earlier last year? Because I mean, I feel uh, we talked about it before we started the, the recording. It's kind of, it feels like a, an accelerator for everybody. Um, and by the, by, by the end of 2020, things had happened that nobody expected in January 2020, for example. So how, yeah. how does this look in, in terms of Compass? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Probably if you were asking different colleagues, you would get different answers yeah. <laughs> um, based on their perspective yeah. and what they are active in. So I can speak uh, maybe for, I, I can touch on different aspects mm -hmm. of the company, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, so obviously in, in terms of the clinical trials, um, Uh, typically, our uh, clinical operations team would travel from site to site and uh, be very much um, out there at uh, our clinical trial partners. And um, we, we always had in-person training for our therapists, etc. So we had to reinvent this whole logistical apparatus, mm -hmm. um, which obviously initially created a lot of Uh, uh, hectic in the team, and I think they did it extremely well. So that's running like a well-oiled machine. Um, and then on the other hand, um, as you know, we went public last year, um, and in order to get public, we uh, uh, we also closed another private financing round in uh, March, um, or right, yeah, I think it was around March. Um, so just three weeks into the crisis, and everybody said, "Look, oh, you're never going to close a financing round. The world is going to stop." And you know how in, investors are in capital markets, right? You saw this huge reaction where all the stock markets dropped, and investors lost confidence. And we were lucky that we had amazing investors on board that um, at no point uh, considered uh, pulling out of that fundraising. And so that happened all um, online um, already, mm -hmm. uh, without a lot of in-person uh, interaction. And when you look at it, right, the, the round we raised was um, was 80 million. Um, and uh, so, so without actually see, meeting the investors uh, in person. Oh, um, wow. Or, or some of the investors. Some we met earlier, but, uh, you know, and, and then we, we teed up for the IPO preparation. So the idea of the IPO was to uh, access the uh, capital markets to raise the funds required for the late stage clinical trial programs, and eventually commercial build out to bring the therapy to patients and if you raise these amounts of uh, capital um eventually you need to be a public company because there's only so much capital the venture capitalists will be able to provide you as a private entity so we had to prepare for the life as a public company um our uh, our research team was growing the financial team was growing and so we onboarded um uh, so many colleagues that we've never seen live right and so oh, you run all the wow. interviews in person you never shook a hand yeah. and um so that was an interesting uh, experience. And um, uh, so, so obviously we grew and uh, we prepared the IPO. We had hundreds of investor meetings uh, in this format on, on Zoom, uh, simply where the normal modus operandi would have been to be in an airplane and go from 
major mm-hmm. uh, capital uh, market city in London, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, etc. Um, meet all the investors, and we did all of it on like like we do now on Zoom. And so instead of doing a two week roadshow for an IPO, we did it in four days, for example. And so the world really, uh, like you said, changed, accelerated. Um, but uh, what, yeah, I mean, what we learned is, and maybe that is that is really important. Is um, you know, oftentimes in psychology, people say depression is a disease of disconnection, and mm-hmm. um, the lockdowns worldwide created uh, this perfect storm of isolating people in their apartments, um, reducing their contact to nature, to their friends, to their social uh, connection, to giving them a feeling of uh, connectedness, maybe in their jobs, and so we saw this huge explosion globally um, in depression um, and that's going to stay with us. And so that for the team made it much, you know, it, it emphasized the need to move very quickly to get uh, cytosine therapy to patients. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was an exciting year uh, that emphasized how important it is what we're doing. Do you feel like a different person now in an IPO company? <laughs> I remember actually, uh, George and Katya, my co-founders mm-hmm. and I, we spoke uh, the day after our IPO or, or the weekend after the IPO. And we said, look, do we feel differently? And the answer was absolutely not. It was yeah. just, to us, it felt very much like another financing round. And um, because, you know, for us really very little change. Yeah, there's a little bit of... Um, uh, you call it bureaucracy or, you know, as a private company, you have a bit more leeway as a public company, obviously um, there's, there are restrictions on information sharing, for mm. example, there's um, obviously all the compliance with the SEC, but once that is organized, the focus is still on patients, right? And cytosine therapy. So, but wouldn't it give you also like, like a, like an energy flash that this is possible because you were pretty much the first one, yeah, right? No, I mean, no, that, that so uh, what it I think on that side I think well that happened a little bit before because we okay. saw that this mm. would happen right and so I think what it uh, what it meant to us actually probably the um, the round that we uh, raised in, in spring basically showed look investors have fully come around mm-hmm. they see that there's a lot of promise in psilocybin therapy the regulators believe in it we had great interactions with insurances that are looking mm-hmm. to be involved um, if psilocybin comes to market so that boost of confidence that this is really possible that came earlier. And yes, it was maybe further emphasized by the IPO because that means we can raise all the required funding for the phase three and for the rollout. Um, absolutely. Because I mean, like suddenly I met friends who were like, yeah, we just bought compass pathway stocks. I was like, so this <laughs> is really happening. So, I mean, it just, to me, like even 2019, like there were so many people saying, yeah, this, nobody knows when this will happen and it can, go, maybe it can go wrong and then everything starts right. from the beginning. So, and then 2020 was like the total confirmation that this is a serious industry also that is, uh, that people would rather invest in now than Amazon or Facebook, my friend, definitely, for example. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, uh, this is true, right? I think this is important. Um, it, it is a major opportunity um, to kind of set the record straight and really fund the research required to figure out how mm-hmm. is uh, psilocybin therapy or psychedelic therapy at large ideally delivered to patients um, and how do we create a change. I think it also led to some uh, irrational exuberance. Um, you see now, I mean, you know, right, there are a lot of uh, 
former cannabis uh, entrepreneurs yeah. and gaming yeah. and mining gaming. entrepreneurs <laughs> that suddenly have become uh, uh, biotech entrepreneurs. That, yeah. uh, but, but, you know, I think uh, I, I caution everyone, um, this can only happen through rigorous science. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that's important. And, you know, I applaud anyone else who's, who's trying to do this in a, in a rigorous uh, manner. But I mean, also what happened last year is in in the American election showing how people wanted to have this treatment. And like we, we said this so many times already in, in other interviews, but there were, I feel like 40 articles um, after the election, um, even in very conservative surroundings or like, or like even magazines like Fast Company, all of them saying uh, drugs are the big winner of the election. So, I mean, what did, for example, the, the Oregon model mean to you that the, um, the whole development that has happened in, in Washington, but also in, in Oregon? Was it something you guys were kind of reacting to or like getting in touch? And because, I mean, it, it seems like it already says it's going to be a model for the future for other places. Yeah, I think it was a huge vote of confidence by the population and change in mental mm-hmm. health and uh, that they see the promise in the therapy. Um, uh, so absolutely uh, great to see that the awareness had, has reached such a level uh, in the wider population, both on the side of recognition of mental health suffering and the need for new solutions, um, which uh, I feel that the U.S. are really leading in terms of that public mm-hmm. perception that the studies are out there. There's a lot of hope around psilocybin therapy. Uh, as you know, Anna, the situation in Germany is still very different, right? Yeah. If you go to a psychiatrist here and tell yeah. them, look, we, we're developing psilocybin, they still might think you're um, a bit bit too far out there. Um, so it just shows that we still have a way to go. I think um, it's exciting. And uh, drugs won the election. <laughs> That's a funny way to put it. I think uh, it's important, right? I think we, uh, as a team, uh, believe or as a company we say look um, the, the war on drug has has failed right we see mm-hmm. a massive crises especially in uh, opioid abuse and we have great role models in Portugal and the Czech Republic where mm-hmm. all drugs have been decriminalized and um, people are not uh, criminally penalized uh, for using drugs but if they have a drug uh, abuse habit they're treated as patients right and I think that's the way um, that uh, hopefully the world is going to develop uh, over the next 10 years. And, um, and yeah, I think there's a clear uh, path forward now. Um, if the science holds up um, for psilocybin to become a, a real option for patients. So psilocybin seems to be now the most, um, like the, the most classic thing to research, I would say, in the meantime. And I mean, but before we come to the to this research center you guys are actually working with now, I mean, I feel in, maybe also because of lockdown and mm-hmm. um, because people can't travel to like other places and to, to the Netherlands or something. So my feeling is that ketamine therapy has become very popular because you can do it in the cities also, like where you live yeah. in. And I mean, um, I started one, um, <laughs> like, was it last year? Yeah. And then now I'm a second round and I think it's so interesting and it's, it feels like, why is this not more communicated to 
so many people who, I mean, I just kind of started to work on my own things that came up during, uh, during last year. But I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that there's no communication at all about the possibility that you, like how you could already use it right now, like without being doing something illegal. So, mm -hmm. but I mean, um, coming quickly back to the, to your study that you started at, at Charité in Berlin. Can you talk a little bit about that already? Is that? What, yeah, what maybe is? on the uh, on the ketamine part, right? I think ketamine is a phenomenal uh, a phenomenal treatment. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. With with great backing, uh, with great research backing, Yale has done a lot of uh, work mm -hmm. with it uh, mm -hmm. under uh, John Crystal, Jerry Sinakora, which for the first time showed that it's a rapid acting antidepressant, and especially for people that are in a suicidal ideation crisis, right? Mm -hmm. It it might provide immediate relief. The effects are not as long-lived um, as they seem to be with uh, hopefully psilocybin, right? You see that patients typically improve for a few days, and then if they are in a really deep depression, they need to come back for another treatment. Um, but it's a real option. The problem, I think, that that uh, exemplifies is how important it is that um, a drug is developed all the way to market. Because for ketamine, there are these academic studies, and yes, they look great, mm -hmm. but ketamine has not been approved. So that means that if you want to... Uh, have it, it's an off-label treatment. So uh, the prescribing physician needs to make a decision on a per-person basis. Typically, it's not reimbursed, therefore. Um, there is no uh, wider awareness in the key opinion leader community. Had someone taken uh, ketamine all the way through phase two, phase three, yeah, right. worked mm -hmm. with, you know, a hundred clinical trial sites and Uh, in let's say Europe and, mm -hmm. and the United States, there would be very different awareness. And then you could go to the um, uh, national insurances, uh, work with them on a reimbursement model, and then people could access uh, the treatment. So that is the step that is missing for ketamine. Um, and yeah. uh, that is the, the step that's going to be different for psilocybin, right? Once it's developed and the, re the insurances reimburse it and the prescribers are aware of it, then patients can actually access it and there would be much more awareness of it. But I mean, do you think that There will be more studies on ketamine also, let's say, in, in, in Europe, because, I mean, like you said, in Yale, there it's already, I mean, you can even watch a couple of YouTube videos about this, how Yale is researching it for a while. But, I mean, it's interesting that it's it's there and it's mm. it works for mm. a lot of people on a very different level. So, and wh why do you think there's... There are not real ketamine studies happening here. Yeah, the problem is that there is no company behind it that has a motive to develop it, right? And um, as we see with psilocybin, it takes hundreds of millions yeah. to develop a drug mm -hmm. through all the required studies, the, the regulatory studies, and then the studies to actually generate the evidence that the insurances can look at and say, is this a cost-effective treatment for patients compared to the standard of care? And no one is taking ketamine. Um, because there's a lack of uh, financial interest in it as well. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Ketamine is, uh, is very affordable, it's off patent, etc. Um, and therefore, we don't see ketamine moving forward. J&J &J, um, mm -hmm. uh, has developed one of the isomers mm -hmm. um, of ketamine as ketamine um, all the way to market. But uh, the interesting thing is that ketamine consists of two isomers, R and S, and they seem to be somewhat synergistic. And um, so uh, it would be very interesting to actually see a head-to-head -head comparison between S-ketamine and, uh, and uh, the racemic ketamine. And it's interesting. It seems that the U.S. Uh, payers um, are partnering up to compare 
S-ketamine to R-ket uh, to um, racemic ketamine mm -hmm. uh, to find out if uh, indeed racemic ketamine uh, is the winning uh, drug. Ah, okay. mm -hmm. If it is, they might actually reimburse it in the United States, mm -hmm. and then you could see uh, ketamine being rolled out. I mean, I think it's going to be an, a very interesting tool for, for the future to really. I mean, besides the the. For people who are like feel suicidal, which a lot of people seem to feel at the moment because they can't cope with it anymore. But besides that, it's also an interesting tool to really start to communicate with yourself on a very different level and um, mm -hmm. on a very healthy level, I feel, that is really kind of giving you information that you have forgotten or that are important to put your, I don't know, your your topics together in a very different way. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it, but obviously. So, so, but coming back to, uh, to Charité. Um, so can, can you already talk a little bit about, um, how you guys, what are you actually researching before yeah, we come absolutely. to the, the Shepherd Pratt Institute? But of course, a lot of people in Berlin would like to know what is actually. Yeah. Happening. Yeah, uh, so, so Charité is our clinical trial site in Germany for the wider phase 2B program, um, our phase 2B where we are researching uh, psilocybin therapy for the treatment of uh, treatment-resistant depression. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, our, uh, our partners at uh, Charité um, are involved in that study. Uh, we're treating a total of uh, uh, 260 patients mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in that program um, in Canada, the US, and then Uh, eight uh, uh, European uh, countries, one of which is is Germany, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, no, we're we're really excited uh, about having such a reputable institution uh, part of that study in Germany, obviously, because that will also start the dialogue in Germany to um, right and look yep. at the science and um, uh, consider the benefit of psilocybin therapy. So. Can you talk a little about a bit about what the study is exactly about? So, is it a comparison between psilocybin and SSRIs? Like, Great okay. question. Mm. It is not. Oh, okay. Um, mm. So, so this is a uh, the the official term would be a dose finding oh, okay. um, study, mm. um, and uh, we are uh, having three arms uh, in that study: one uh, milligram, ten milligram, and twenty-five milligram. Um, the study has a power of 90 to detect a six-point difference on the MADRAS um, depression rating scale uh, at week three after dosing. And then we're comparing the 25 milligram and the 10 milligram to the one milligram uh, dose in that study. And, um, you know, maybe the 10 and 25 milligram doses have been tried before. For example, the study that was done in treatment-resistant depression at Imperial College mm -hmm. in 19 patients, mm -hmm. they were pre-treated with 10 milligram dose to familiarize themselves with the psychedelic experience, which did not have any major uh, antidepressant effects in that study. And then um, uh, they received a 25 milligram dose, um, uh, I believe two weeks after, uh, and they had a massive uh, antidepressant uh, response in that study. And so the idea is that, you know, across uh, different uh, nationalities and different trial sites that we can still show a strong effect Uh, in that study, uh, confirming what the active dose would be. And then um, hopefully after successful completion of the phase 2B program, we would then take the active dose into a phase 3 program again in North America and Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but I mean, you just, you already mentioned it, that the topic in Germany is kind of 
still kind of a very difficult one, one could say. But I feel this year, um, also because of the other study from the, um, I think it's also uh, Professor Gründer and the Mind Foundation and yes. um, yeah. the uh, Zentrum für Psychische Gesundheit in Mannheim. I mean, that's that's a, a study that was uh, kind of uh, re co-founded also by the German government. So I feel like maybe by 2021, there will be a whole different attitude in, in Germany also because the government literally gave money to this. Do you think this will affect the perception a huge vote of confidence obviously you know someone reputable as, as Gerd Gründer who's uh, obviously one of the leading key opinion leaders of Germany an amazing researcher to um, to look at this uh, seriously in a second study mm. hopefully confirming uh, our results mm -hmm. I think uh, Germany is a country with amnesia because uh, yeah. it's very interesting you know <laughs> yeah. until the late uh, 1990s you know when everybody in the US always says oh there was a ban on psychedelics in 1970 everything stopped That's that's directionally correct in the US. It continued for a couple of years and then funding dried up and the field moved on. That's not true in Germany, right? Mm -hmm. We did the last psilocybin studies in the late 1990s um, okay. at the oh. University of Cologne. And oh. uh, Germany was amongst the leading centers, if not the leading center in psilocybin research um, at the University um, of Göttingen, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where hundreds and hundreds of subjects were treated with psilocybin for all kinds of disorders, not only depression, but eating disorders and so on. So we have a very rich history in Germany of psilocybin research with amazing results. But uh, when, you know, when the field uh, stopped and all the uh, researchers of that generation retired, somewhat this knowledge was lost. And um, mm -hmm. so I hope that with positive results in that study, Uh, in these studies that you just mentioned, um, hopefully also people will revive that knowledge and will realize that we uh, we have quite a history in psychedelic well, research I mean, in Germany. Well, I mean, Merck, MDMA, 2000, uh, 1913, and, and Bayer, heroin. So, I mean, everything happens in, in the Cologne, <laughs> Düsseldorf area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, MDMA, mes masculine, hefter, yeah. right? So, or Switzerland with with Sandoz, right? They um, discovered LSD and they discovered uh, psilocybin as the active alkaloid in, mm -hmm. in magic mushrooms and created a lot of novel psychedelics as well early on uh, at Sandoz, and uh, those were also researched in Germany. So, indeed, there is a rich history. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, let's quickly come back to the the Shepherd Pratt Institute. So. Um, yes. You talk about, or like in, in the articles I read, so it's basically presented as, I mean, the center of excellence will model the clinic of the future. So Correct. can you talk a little bit about how this clinic, the clinic of the future in terms of um, psilocybin treatment could look like? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we're trying to find out uh, together <laughs> with our colleagues at Shepard okay. Pratt. Maybe uh, to take a step back before diving deeper into Shepherd Pratt, mm -hmm. uh, what, what was really interesting, what we saw in our um, phase one uh, program mm -hmm. uh, was that we dosed up to six participants at the same time in the same room. And when you compare that to the other studies uh, done in the last 20 years with psilocybin, it was always one patient, two therapists in a room. Mm -hmm. um, and so we thought about, you know, is that really uh, a requirement um, or could we do it in, in larger groups? Mm -hmm. And in that study, um, we had 90 participants. They all decided to stay in the groups. They could isolate themselves. None of the participants did that. Interesting. Um, mm -hmm. We were also able to not have two therapists per participant, but only one therapist per participant, which obviously will lower the cost to the system if you need fewer therapists. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And the most interesting result is that we had the lowest anxiety rates in any of the modern day psilocybin studies. Wow. So that might be a chance result. Who knows? But we discussed it with the uh, PIs. And the PI's opinion is that maybe the group experience has a calming effect on the participants, right? If you never had a psychedelic experience and suddenly you realize that your perception of reality changes, you might get nervous about it. But when you look around and you see it happens in a group to everyone else, um, this might have a calming effect um, on the participants. And so that was a very interesting um, result. And uh, from there, uh, we actually got involved in a major depression disorder uh, program um, in in Maryland, mm-hmm. um, where we, under our IND uh, with the FDA, um, there are uh, groups of four. So patients are prepared in groups of four. They receive psilocybin in groups of four, and they integrate in groups of four um, wow. for the first time in mm-hmm. patients. And so um, when we think about how do we scale this, right? If the studies are successful, how do we scale this in the real world? Um, we believe that um, uh, simultaneous administration, which is a kind of group administration, might be the way forward. So when we think about the clinic of the future, what we want to understand is what is a commercial model that makes sense. And maybe the answer is that a patient has a first psilocybin experience, needs to do it in the more traditional model alone with a therapist. But maybe once they're familiarized and they have a follow-on session of psilocybin therapy, for example, maybe they can do it in a group. And um, so that is uh, one of the aspects that we're really interested in that we want to research in the future. So we talk about the uh, clinic of the future, the idea of the centers of excellence. Um, there are a couple of uh, objectives we have. We need to train a lot of therapists mm-hmm. that we can do through the center of excellence model. Um, we need to uh, create awareness for psilocybin therapy. So we want to have a place where we can go with payer systems like insurances or state payers, where we can go with um, leading uh, partners from mental health care uh, hospital chains, for example, or uh, psychiatrists that have their own clinics. So they come to a place and look at what should psilocybin therapy look like. And then the question is, uh, Anna, where can we take uh, psilocybin therapy beyond depression, right? Everybody at right. the moment is, uh, is very much focused uh, in our team on delivering uh, a world-class treatment-resistant depression program. But we did a lot of research preclinically, um, and obviously there are also some academic studies in uh, other uh, psychiatric disorders and substance abuse disorders with phenomenal results. And so now we're looking at where can we go next? And Shepherd Pratt is one of the world's leading institutions in psychiatry, seeing 70,000 patients um, in their wider environment. And um, so they are uh, an ideal partner for us to investigate these uh, new areas. And so, for example, one of the studies we're looking at uh, together with them is bipolar type 2. Uh, so bipolar depression is obviously a huge need. Um, we're looking at suicidal ideation. Um, back to the ketamine point, right? We know what's the benefit of ketamine is it works immediately mm-hmm. and um, takes people that do respond out of their um, suicidal uh, thought patterns. And um, the, the question is, might psilocybin do the same just with a longer duration so that the patients don't have to come back mm-hmm. um, the following day for a follow-on session? Um, so, uh, and, and then severe TRD. Um, at the moment in our TRD study, we're looking at patients. What is TRD? Good question. Uh, Treatment-resistant depression. So in our core program, treatment-resistant depression, we're looking at two to four pharmacological failures in the patient's current episode of depression. But obviously, there are these people that have had depression for 10 years on end, and they have failed um, uh, many more treatments. And oftentimes, these patients uh, end up in a state where they're on very heavy uh, antidepressant medication. It could be antipsychotics. 
uh, tricyclics, um, lithium, etc., um, or progress into electroconvulsive therapy, which is very efficacious, but obviously has a huge side effect profile, right? People are put under generalized anesthesia. They are electro uh, shocked to create a state of convulsion um, that uh, seems to reset the, the brain, but it comes with uh, a, a real irreversible impact uh, on the brain. And so uh, that is one of the, uh, that's called the severe TRD population. Um, that is something that uh, Shepard Pratt is interested in in researching with, uh, with us. And um, so we're broadening out um, the portfolio into uh, new mm-hmm. indication areas with them. The idea is to run small studies um, that don't take much time and as soon as we have a signal, we would move them into large trials similar to our phase two, phase three program. And I mean, I read that they exist, uh, the Shepard Pratt Institute it's, uh, was founded in 1853, which is super interesting to me because I was thinking, do you guys, I mean, obviously they, they already also looked into mental health um, treatments since then. So Do you look into studies they did on the topic that are maybe like 50, 60, 7, maybe even like 100 years old or like experiments? Because I mean, there were always like, if you look back in, in the the history of um, of studies, there are often hints that one could find, but they weren't executed because it was it seemed crazy or it seemed not really realistic or just too expensive. So is, is there kind of a, an archive that you guys are working with, what they already researched since their beginning? That, that is a very interesting question. And um, indeed, when you look at uh, the studies that have been done in psychedelic research over the last 20 years, while they seem very novel and exciting, they have all been done before, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you go back to the 1950s and 60s, they might not have been done with psilocybin. They might have been done with LSD or mescaline, but we're just replicating what has been done before because back then we didn't have the same definitions of a disease that we have today. Today, we are much more skilled in identifying uh, what problem a patient has, and uh, we have uh, more advanced statistical methods. We have uh, double-blind placebo-controlled studies that were back in the days when psychedelic research was at its peak, still the a rare exception um, in research, and therefore it makes a lot of sense to replicate um, these mm-hmm. studies. And um, I think the uh, when you when you go back um, in in psychiatry, there's this disconnect between psychiatry and psychology in the past, right? At some point. The psychiatrists tried to tweak a little. They thought it's some uh, chemical imbalance in the brain that needs needed fixing. And then on the other end, you had uh, psychologists who said, look, psychiatry doesn't make sense at all. Um, and I think now we see more uh, convergence of both fields where people say, how great is it if we can help people with a medical intervention that might give their brain the ability to change, but at the same time, we bundle it uh, with a therapeutic intervention. And so I think that's where... Um, Uh, psilocybin therapy comes in, right? You have um, these strong biological effects um, of psilocybin, for example, the reduction of inflammation in the brain or the increase of neuroplasticity that give you the ability to make changes. And then you have the therapeutic intervention. So I'm pretty sure there's a lot uh, to be learned still from uh, for what has been done in the past. Um, but but as you might know, there are also very um, uh, abysmal practices in psychiatry when you think about lobotomy Yeah, um, for yeah. example, and uh, does that still exist? Uh, actually, and I've... luckily not. Uh, I, I was surprised. I recently read this. Art- there was an interesting article in the New York Times of the history of psychiatry, and I think uh, lobotomy came to an end in the late 1980s. 
um, which is shocking uh, that it still um, went on for so long. Um, another one that was very popular um, in uh, nineteen in the nineteen fifties nineteen sixties was uh, insulin overdoses. Uh, ah, so right. you basically mm. injected insulin to create a state of uh, uh, hypoglycemia um, to induce, uh, for example, convulsion um, that was then replaced with uh, electroshock therapy. Um, and and the the the, the really negative, uh, I mean, the, apart from that, was very little scientific backing for these methods. Oftentimes, uh, a lot of that happened against the will uh, mm. of the patients, mm. right? If you were if your family decided you have a mental illness and you need a treatment, then often these treatments were done against your will, uh, which is shocking. And so, uh, obviously, psychiatry has progressed a lot, and um, uh, I, I think that we should rather learn from the mistakes. Uh, that that have been made and um well at one point you, you a, didn't have a will anymore i guess right after a couple of these treatments yeah. you were just yeah and i think this there, that, that is exactly where where science you know it, with that is what happens when you see people that are uh, sometimes put on three four antidepressants at the same time right you lose your uh, overall emotional response uh, you become somewhat yeah uh, you don't really care about, uh, you, you lose your sense of agency. And it seems that psilocybin is doing exactly the opposite mm -hmm, when you look at mm -hmm. the results of the academic studies, right? Where patients come out and they say, suddenly I have full agency again. I, I'm an you know, astronaut. I want back my lust for life. <laughs> I, you know, I want to, I want to do something with my life. Yeah, that's right. Great. And so, I mean... so that's, that's exciting. Right. And if we could show this, um, uh, with Shepard Pratt in other education mm -hmm. areas, um, Uh, that would be phenomenal to do that with such a reputable research institute. Well, it seems also that the research for agency is like one of the most important things at the moment. I mean, again, especially in the pandemic where a lot of people rethought their agency or what they wanted to do with their life anyway. So it seems like a, yeah. another contribution to... Um, to look for support systems that can help you in finding this agency again. But I mean, let's, of course, we have to talk about um, the, the treatment called COMP 3060, or do you say COMP 360? We say COMP 360, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, which is, if you if you read, read it up, it, it's described as psilocybin therapy trial for treatment-resistant depression. So maybe you can talk a little about how this look like or how this will look like if you, if this comes, let's say, I mean, to the market or as a treatment in hospitals. When, when we looked at developing it, right, we asked ourselves the question, where, where's the need the biggest? And um, uh, we didn't uh, answer that in a vacuum, but we obviously worked a lot with uh, our scientific advisors. We worked with the regulators and the clear guidance there was focus on treatment resistant depression. That is where the need is the biggest. And um, when you look at, for example, the study study, which is the largest depression study ever done, you see that when patients become depressed for the first time, um, typically they go to their uh, GP mm -hmm. and they describe that they are in a state of sadness and um, uh, that's oftentimes the first symptom they describe to their practitioner and, and they have a lack of energy. And so then typically they're put on an SSRI, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and a third of patients respond really well, just takes them out of that hole mm -hmm. um, and they go on with their lives. Then, uh, The two thirds that don't respond, they come back a couple of weeks later and say, Hey, 
I didn't really get a response from it. And then the uh, physician often prescribes another SSRI or an SNRI. Um, and um, again, another third respond. So uh, two thirds of patients are really well treated with the existing uh, uh, treatments. But then you have that third that does not respond. And then it becomes really uh, a very quickly a problem because then they have already failed these two treatments. Then typically the GP says, look, you got to see a psychiatrist. The patient goes to the psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist doesn't really have any measurement tools. So they start, they, they look at the guideline and the guideline might say, look, give them a tricyclic, give them an antipsychotic, um, you know, try to get them onto psychotherapy, which, um, uh, you know, the waiting lines are very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, to get an appointment if, if that's supposed to be reimbursed. And so that's where it becomes uh, very difficult. And that unfortunately uh, impacts uh, over 100 million patients uh, globally. Uh, and that was before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So with the pandemic, we know these numbers are rising very, Double. very sharply. And so the, um, uh, that is, that is our focus. So, um, now think about this patient, hopefully after approval of psilocybin therapy, right? They come to their psychiatrist and they say, look, uh, here's uh, what, what my GP has uh, prescribed. This hasn't worked. And then um, hopefully so the psychiatrist is aware of the ability to prescribe uh, psilocybin therapy. And already today, we're speaking with some of the large mental health care providers in um, Europe and uh, the United States. And so what we expect is that the clinic systems will build out treatment rooms. You will have the uh, larger uh, psychiatric uh, practices that consist of psychiatrists and psychologists that will have the treatment rooms to run um, psilocybin therapy. And then the patients will largely go through a similar um, scheme as they do in, uh, in our phase 2 v program. They will work with a the therapist uh, to be prepared uh, for the session, meaning to approach it with openness and um, to learn some coping mechanisms to breathe through any um, uh, turbulence during the actual experience. Then the experience happens in a in a clinic, um, uh, either in a session where the uh, patient works with the lead therapist, or maybe even in the future, as I said, in somewhat of a group mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. setup. And then the patient will uh, again afterwards uh, integrate the experience, which we believe is crucially important. Right there, when we look at the um, uh, the more qualitative analyses of the studies, oftentimes patients say something like, this felt like 20 years of psychotherapy condensed into six hours. Mm. For the first time, I understood why I became depressed. I realized what uh, behaviors don't uh, serve me anymore. I realized what uh, relationships don't serve me anymore. And I realized what relationships I neglected, what behaviors I neglected. So they have clear insight. If they then process that together with the therapist, we believe this contributes to these uh, positive long-term outcomes. And then maybe uh, the last thing to say is that um, we are seeing that digital health becomes just mental health treatment. And so the idea that we have with our team is to look at what are the most promising uh, tools that patients might be able to use in the future to support hopefully the positive effects of psilocybin therapy. For example, we're, um, uh, we're working on a digital phenotyping solution, um, which would allow us to, on a per patient basis, predict um, the patient's relapse. And we know that, you know, some patients that do respond to psilocybin therapy, they improve for three months, mm -hmm. others for six mm -hmm. months, others for 12 months, others forever. But the response is very, very varied, right? And if we could then say, um, look, Lars, you know, you're out of your depression, but now we're seeing that you're worsening. 
you're going back to your old behaviors based on your, mm. uh, for example, mobile phone use. Mm. <laughs> um, and then we could invite patients back into the clinic and have them have another psilocybin therapy session before they become depressed again. That would be the holy grail because we know that at every point in time when a patient uh, becomes depressed again, the chance of recovery is only 50%. Mm. And so we hope that this will be the model of the future where patients have the ability to exercise psilocybin therapy in that safe environment. If you really think it through that, let's say, let's say at one point, the whole world is able to do psychedelics based on their depression or to use it as a tool to cure their depression. It's something I really think a lot about recently that do you think that the human being will actually be changed after this? Because I mean, I think everybody who started to do psychedelics in, in a safe set and setting and in a rather maybe medical therapeutical approach even then you realize how certain things that uh, like you said earlier used to be very important are completely kind of disappearing and also a lot of things that were related to consumerism or like things that one gets told in, in education like mm. owning six houses and five cars and you know, kind of all this kind of, you should be so-and-so, you should do this and this. And I feel if really like, let's say, I mean, it's just like a, like an idea, but if like the whole world population would actually undergo this, what would that actually mean? Do you ever think about that? <laughs> Look, I think this, yeah, I do. Uh, I do uh, not, not, not on the abstract philosophical yeah. level necessarily. No, no. And in a practical but, level. But I yeah. think on a very practical yeah. level, because when you, uh, when you look at, um, You know, what is depression, right? Um, there are different theories, but uh, one of uh, that I find very convincing is that it's somewhat uh, an evolutionary adaptation uh, mm -hmm. to adversity and um, uh, to stress, for example, or to trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what traumatizes people and would create stress, right? Um, when you look at uh, countries that are very egalitarian, um, where people have a social safety net, when you look at the Scandinavian mm -hmm. countries, yeah. And you correct for Im impact factors like it's dark for six months of the year, right? If you correct for that, the depression levels are much lower compared to states and uh, to countries where you have a very capitalist system without that framework where when people uh, become sick, that they have general health care or that they have a social security net. So there's this constant stressor. And, um, uh, you know, this is this is an interesting one uh, to observe, right? Um If, uh, you know, if people are caught in that red race um, of this constant stress and they uh, can't free themselves from that, then you have that stress that will always make you make you depressed again. Right. And so um, uh, what, what we see with with, with uh, psychedelic therapies, right, the integration part is really important to your point. Right. If you can mm -hmm. reassess what actually matters and I really focus on the things that matter. Um, when we look at, uh, at the studies and patients come out of these studies, oftentimes they say, oh, I realized I neglected my family. I mm -hmm. neglected, I neglected mm -hmm. my friends. I realized nature matters a lot to me. I need to be more outside. Uh, I need to take care of my body, right? All uh, aspects that, that uh, are known to contribute to a, a, a good mental health. So, um, like you said, right, if, uh, if patients have that, Uh, mental reset and they focus on what matters most to them um, uh, I, I hope they get better in the long run and if that happens at a large scale hopefully we have a more uh, kind uh, society uh, to each other. I think it's totally realistic I mean I think it's something that will 
change things that we don't even we can't even think of right now. Like we couldn't think of having a Tesla car like ten years ago, for example. That I mean, now it yeah. seems like yeah, well, it's totally normal. But ten years ago, it was like a total Back to the Future scenario movie thing or something. So why shouldn't the yeah. world be kinder after six? So it could be. Look, I think uh, uh, just to quote, uh, uh, you know, I'm 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 no expert here, right? But I I like what uh, Rick Doblin uh, mm -hmm. says, right? Uh, we we had a discussion uh, two years two years ago, I want to say, and um, and someone asked and said, look, uh, why did the psychedelic uh, movement uh, fail in the 1960s and early 1970s? Um, there was all that great research. It mm -hmm. was helping patients. There were already clinics treating people. You know, why did it all come to an end? Why did it fail? And so then Rick paused for a bit and he said, well, it didn't fail. It was too successful. Ah, and uh, that's an interesting one. And he said it threatened the establishment mm -hmm. back then, right? We were much more in a, there was a power culture. The U.S. were at war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. What happened is they couldn't find enough recruits anymore in the young population because, as you know, LSD had escaped the lab. Sure. And people that had an LSD experience said, look, why should I fight a war if mm -hmm. I could rather think about an, you know, a green revolution or energy change or female rights, black rights, uh, the anti-nuclear movements? So, so all of these uh, movements came out of this, uh, this psychedelic um, uh, world. That's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about this. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I think the uh, the positive benefit that you're talking about, right, I, I think um, if people become kinder to themselves, you know, first you need to heal yourself um, to be there for others. I think you're right, right? If that happens at scale, uh, hopefully uh, this will have a major impact on, on the world. I mean, we have uh, milk that we put in a coffee made out of peas right now. I mean, yeah. I never thought of <laughs> <laughs> somebody would have told me this and I'm obsessed with it. It's just the best milk ever. It's like how fast this goes that you adjust to things. It's also very interesting. But before we, before we go, I would I'd really like to talk a little bit about uh, like a compass offering um, like public market shares. So, and because I'm just wanted to quickly talk about this because I feel in my kind of a lot of, like I said, a lot of my friends are suddenly to start and in, invest in this. And I feel it's a kind mm -hmm. of an interesting mixture of investing something with a purpose that is not just mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, well, anything that has not such a great purpose, maybe in the end. So, but a lot of people actually are wondering how to approach this. So, I mean, in general, the psychedelic investment, mm -hmm. but I mean, of course, you, yours is out there and it's it's a very attractive company to invest in that's what i hear from from people who are really um know a lot about this so how could somebody how, how would you say somebody should approach this i mean i know you have you communicate with your investors you have an you have a special website where you actually where one can get information and um just maybe get a little bit of advice so Or let's say, how would you like to people approach this that are just getting into investing and um, also would like to invest because it's a great company with a great purpose? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And um, look, I I would advise people that look at investing into psychedelic therapy, um, developing com companies, and to think about uh, what's what's real. 
Mm-hmm. Right? You have a lot of these uh, companies that uh, consist of a fancy uh, PowerPoint presentation, um, but it's really about running these large-scale uh, studies in order to be successful, right? And then I think, um, uh, obviously, we're very transparent with the work we're doing. Um, you know, key focus is depression. Now we're looking at all these new indications. Uh, I mentioned some of them. Others we're looking at is autism and anorexia. Mm-hmm. And so we're broadening it out. And so I think then as an investor, right, your decision needs to be, do you believe in psilocybin therapy? Um, and um, and then you, then you can look at what's going to happen at Compass in the future. Obviously, we're going to have the results from the phase to B uh, program, and then people need to make their assessment. Do they believe this is, has a good chance to be uh, successful? If the answer is yes, uh, then uh, you know that that should influence their investment decision. Um, and I think that's the way they should think about all uh, the uh, companies in that space. I think what is really important to us is that we are not a uh, we don't define ourselves as a psychedelic company, mm-hmm. uh, but really as a mental health care okay. company because um, we're. Uh, somewhat agnostic. We just believe that Cyber is one of the maze, most amazing tools out there to change outcomes for patients. Um, but we're looking far broader than that. I mentioned digital, for example. We're looking at other mental health innovation at the moment. And so whatever brings hope to patients is something that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's how we define the company. So whoever is interested in invent- investing in mental health uh, should absolutely uh, look at Compass. And I mean, like we, we talked in our first podcast we did, we talked about you undergoing a psilocybin experience and getting in touch with the the changes that can actually bring to your mental health. So have you done anything else in the meantime? Or is it was that? <laughs> I'm just curious. I always want to know about the experiences of others. If you want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so look, I think the... Um, I think the interesting thing maybe to answer that question uh, is that uh, I, I told you, Anna, that my first uh, experience that really helped me with my own depression mm-hmm. and anxiety in 2016. And what is really amazing is that I'm still having um, uh, insights from that experience, right? There were things that became very clear to me of uh, what matters to me in my life and things that don't yeah. matter. And so, for example, I realized how much I love nature. And so I moved, uh, one of the results that I then implemented is I moved out to the woods. And so, you know, I can take a walk uh, whenever I want in the forest, for example. Mm-hmm. I realized I definitely wanted to have kids. Uh, I have a little daughter now, oh. one and a half year old. Oh. I have another one on the way. Um, so I think the, the uh, you know, and, and I, I realized how who's important in my life, who my friends are, who I want to stay in contact with. Um, uh, how important my my own health is, for example, and, you know, all these things. I'm still uh, I have very present mm-hmm. uh, in my mind, mm-hmm. and I think that is that is one of the things that gives me a lot of confidence in our work. When I look backwards, you know, now five years ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, I had that experience, and still today I'm using what I learned from it. And I think, as Michael Pollan said, right on a rational level, that is clear to you before. But it just sinks in on a different level uh, under in a psychedelic experience, and so maybe that's the best way to answer it. I'm, in the past year, I still benefited from an experience okay. I had five years ago. So you're ago. still working on your integration, <laughs> absolutely. Which is totally what my experience too. That like so many things popping up suddenly in a moment where you don't think 
day would pop up where you can connect dots that you couldn't connect and then kind of go to make different um, decisions based on these dots that are connected. So I totally can see that this lasts for like a long time, how you actually, how this implements in, in your life, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important, right? I think uh, the integration part is, you know, you, there are those people that uh, probably you know, I know that take psychedelics very regularly, but you don't see them change. Yeah. And so yeah, it's become... It's Uh, so it's really important to focus on the uh, integration part um, if you want to see change in your life. So, Lars, it was great to have you on the show the second time. A lot of things have happened and thanks for being on the show again. Thanks very much for having me on it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.